You're listening to STEM Essential, an Iowa Governor's STEM Advisory Council podcast. Hear from leading advocates and voices about why STEM education is crucial for our world today and tomorrow. Welcome, everybody, to Series 2 of STEM Essentials podcasts, featuring some of Iowa's and the nation's leading thinkers in STEM. This series is all about STEM jobs of the future. I'm Jeff Weld, Director of Iowa STEM Council, an Edgenomic Development Initiative where education and economic development merge to improve lives and communities. The people we'll hear from are Edgenomic developers, co-mingling jobs with learning. Today, featuring Dr. Mark Nook, the 11th president of the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls and member of the Executive Committee of the Governor's STEM Advisory Council, who also serves as president of the Missouri Valley Conference Presidents, among many organizational leadership posts he holds. He grew up in Holstein, Iowa, and is a true STEMer with advanced degrees in astrophysics and astronomy. Thank you for joining us, President Nook. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, let's start with your own interesting STEM journey, if we could. What significant influence or influences sent you into majoring in math and physics as an undergraduate in the first place and or as an astronomy scholar too, before being lured into administration? <laughs> well, that's a great question, Jeff. I, I, I'm a product of the space program in many ways. Uh, uh, you know, it's interesting we're talking today. Uh, it was uh, 1950, October 4th, 1957, that Sputnik was launched. So just uh, 63 years and a few days ago. Um, and uh, it was in July of, of 1958 that NASA was formed. I was born between those two dates. Uh, so I really grew up with the space program and it had a big influence on my my very young life. Uh, I remember hearing about some of the Gemini missions and and of course the uh, uh, even one or two of the Mercury missions, but then the Apollo mission was a, a very big deal. There's just a lot of science going on in the early 60s in particular. And I think that had a very big influence um, you know, I, I used to watch all the things on the news and and it it really did from an, a very early age uh, push me towards wanting to be a scientist and figuring out what that really meant and what that career path would be. So big influence through the space program. I think the other thing is uh, my family, we spent a lot of time outside just uh, uh, going to parks and things of that sort um, and, uh, you know, walking around the wilderness, whether it was in Iowa or Colorado. We lived in Colorado for a little bit. And, and just that being around nature, seeing the dark skies, uh, figuring out trees and grasses and prairies and, and uh, catching fish, all of that is, is you know, it's nature. It, it's the essence of, of science really is is observing and exploring. Yeah, thank you. Rich childhood experience immersed in STEM. So, you know, the STEM community today in 2020 laments the fact that we don't have a Sputnik to rally the American citizenry uh, around math, science imperative like, uh, like they did in 1958. But do you see a, a, a Sputnik uh, analog uh, alive and well these days to inspire our youth and send them in this direction? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think there's a, the problem is that there's a bunch of them out there. There isn't one, right? There was such a focus around the space program. Uh, Kennedy's call to, to be the first uh, nation to put a man on the moon really just put everything else on the side um, uh, by comparison. Uh, we've got things going on in the astronomy and astrophysics world in the, in the detection of, of gravitational waves from merging black holes. We've got things going on in, in uh, artificial intelligence and uh, data analytics. We've got so much going on in, in microcircuitry. And there's, there's just the, the things booming in healthcare, um, especially, you know, as we kind of work our way through the, the COVID um, pandemic. Uh, there's just so many big steps being made. Uh, but there isn't sort of one that holds our attention the way that uh, the space race really did back in the early 60s. Yeah, what an interesting point to make that there's a cacophony of urgency and uh, there's not a singular cause to hang our hats on. And so we're no. kind of scattered. That's right. Well, I'm going to take you uh, deeper into that line of thinking with this question. The topic we're exploring today, of course, with you in particular across our array of guests, is preparing STEM workers of the future, considering that our listeners range from parents to teachers, business professionals, nonprofit heads, policymakers, maybe even some students, would you comment on why this topic should matter to them? Why, why should they care? Why should they dial in and, and find this interesting? Yeah, I, I think there's lots of reason. It may depend on exactly where you sit, but um, I think it's important to recognize that much of our economy um, and when I say our, I mean the world's economy, but especially the U.S., the developed world, uh, is driven by advances in science, right? It's the things that happen in science in particular that lead to new discoveries, that lead to new technologies, that lead to new businesses and industries, right? So the, the kernel for job growth starts out for the most part in the science fields. And as we develop a lot of these new technologies, develop those science understandings, we develop new technologies, those get turned into businesses, right? So there's this string um, uh, of how things proceed. So especially for those in, in the policy area, that's important. Uh, for those that are, are teachers it's uh, and, and even students, it's great to understand that, 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 that science is what makes the new discoveries. Um, science, I've always said science isn't something you know, it's something you do. Um, and, and it's a way of looking at the world. It's a way of addressing problems. It's a way of helping us move forward in our understanding, not just of the natural world, but how that natural world interfaces with humanity and uh, our impact on the natural world as well. So, um, uh, and, and I think the final point from my perspective, it's just really cool. Um, uh, science and, and technology, engineering, mathematics, they're um, a lot of fun to engage in, being able to solve problems that, that others aren't able to take on, being able to look at the world a little bit differently, um, being able to work through really incredibly difficult problems because you have, taught yourself, you have learned from others how to work through this incredible problem-solving mechanism that, that science teaches. You know, I want to pursue that even deeper because, of course, we are both well aware. You're a grandfather. I just became a grandfather for the first time. And we both know that kids are born natural scientists. They're curious. They're inquisitive. They're exploratory. They're experimental. They're trying to make sense of the world around them. And, and over the course of schooling, 
we can sometimes generate an anti-science mindset that we see sometimes in the in the world around us. Can you talk a little bit about where we may once in a while drop the ball and a young naturally born scientist ends up uh, an anti-science adult? Yeah, you know, uh, you're exactly right. There's this innate curiosity that's, uh, I think, in every individual. I've certainly seen it in young people, not only my grandchildren and my children when they were growing up, but the, the thousands of students that came through uh, a planetarium that I ran uh, for many, many years and, and students that I've worked with in state parks during doing shows and things of that sort. There's a, a, a couple things that I think can get in the way. Um, you know, oftentimes in, in schools, that asking of questions can can get to be a problem, right? It, it can hold progress up on a lesson, but it's those questions that are really important. Um, and uh, the center of science is, is learning to ask questions and learning to ask appropriate questions and then finding the mechanisms to solve those questions. And, uh, you know, uh, equipping all of our teachers to be able to do that, to think through how do I keep developing a, a, a young person's curiosity, help them find out how to answer those questions is, is a big, big lift. Um, and uh, sometimes those questions take people off track and uh, that they need to come back on track, but we've got to find a way to do it without sort of I'll say crushing that that curiosity, but it, but at least impaling that curiosity, um, and, and keep that moving forward, and help them uh, also pick up the math skills that they're going to need because those really are essential uh, to a life in in science, engineering, and technology. Is really understanding how the math works, and and math teaches us so much about logic that's inherent to the workings of science and the answering of questions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sounds like uh, the perfect wheelhouse of a premier American university. Absolutely. So a lot of our <laughs> listeners are going to really enjoy hearing from you in that position as leading uh, premier American university. So let me frame the question as this. As a higher education leader, you carry a profound responsibility to guide the institution in delivering a promise of good preparation and hopefully a good job to all who take full advantage of what UNI offers. So I wanna ask you about current conditions and then look toward the future. So first, how would you characterize this moment in time regarding STEM jobs and how UNI and all of us are doing at preparing people for these STEM careers that await? You know, I think the, the STEM jobs are, are growing. Um, the fastest growing jobs out there really are in fields that require some level of, of understanding in science, mathematics, engineering, and technology. Um, you can see that also in the salaries that are being offered to people that have, have those backgrounds. Um, uh, so I think it's a great, it's, it's always from here on out going to be a great time to be in the sciences because everybody has really realized that what science engineering, technology, mathematics does to drive the economy forward, the changes that are needed, the innovations that are needed. So that's that's really important. Um, I think, you know, over the last really probably two decades, we've seen some big changes happen in especially STEM education at the K to 12 level that are really kind of opening people's eyes up to the importance of asking uh, uh, questions about how we educate students, young people, so that they 
we do help them maintain that curious outlook in life, ask those questions, and learn the logic to be able to answer many of those questions. Um, and even if they decide to work in an area that doesn't use the sciences directly or isn't thought of as science-related, those principles of problem-solving and, and uh, interacting with, they're still going to have a bunch of data they've got to interact with, even if it isn't necessarily from the natural world, it might be from the social world. Um, it, it's still, many of those skills are there. So, um, you know, I think we're, we're really doing pretty well in that regard. Um, I think we do need to, to get a larger section of our, our population to to view science as, as something that's really essential and, and building a deeper understanding of that and pushing their understanding of, of science as far as they can within the limits of their preparation for their careers and their personal lives. Well, as the leader of, a, of an institution that draws a very diverse and interesting spectrum of student, I mean, this campus has a, a widely renowned theater program and arts and English and writing and the humanities. And, and here we're talking about these high demand STEM careers. And you touched a little bit upon the, uh, the skill sets that transcend STEM and beyond. But how do you account for and balance these varied interests across an institution when we're talking about a subdomain that's really a strong economic driver? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple things that I keep in mind. And, um, you know, one is that uh, science may drive the economy, but these cultural things that you mentioned, our, our theater program, the the tremendous Gallagher Blue Dorn Performing Arts Center that we have here that brings in acts from around the world, uh, they drive the quality of life. And I think one of the things we have to keep in mind is that um, the other field, all the fields that you mentioned that don't seem to be STEM related uh, have a, uh, require a lot of, of background in science and technology and mathematics. Um, it was wonderful to see our, our theater department um, put on a, a really a couple of plays that brought that out. Um, uh, Greta Berghammer put together a, a great interactive um play on discovering the moon that was for um, young people on the autism spectrum. And it really helped them sort of engage curiosity and understand what the trip to the moon was like and, and how to learn from that experience. But, uh, you know, you look behind the scenes in theater and the lighting and the audio and, and all of that is, is very tech based um, and understanding the properties of light, understanding the properties of sound and the electronics and how to record and, and, and how to amplify all of those things are, are integrated and to see theater as separate from the sciences and science is separate from the theater or literature or the arts um, is a real problem. Um, and it, it's one of the reasons that, you know, we've reached out to the art department and made sure that that art from the gallery is hung in the house and so that we can talk to people about the artwork that that uh, is generated here at the university uh, and put it on display and, and um, help people understand the importance of the arts as well as the sciences and the humanities and the social sciences because they all support um, uh, the human endeavor um, and, and they've all got a different place there. And balancing those uh, is really important to have a, a very balanced, not just a uh, way of life here, a culture, but a balanced economy. Um, they all have impacts on the economy that are important for us to, to keep track of and, and to enhance. Absolutely. Thank you. 
And of course, you're well aware that the Governor's STEM Advisory Council, upon which you serve, has uh, driven us to uh, attenuate our incorporation of arts and humanities more strongly into the array of programs that we offer for all of those reasons. So we're grateful for that guidance and, and vision. But I want to take you back to um, the, the STEM learning experience that we've touched on a couple of times in this conversation, the Sputnik uh, inspiration that launched your career and, and sustaining that interest through K-12 and into college and into life is so essential for STEM literate citizenry. And it starts, as you said, with how we teach as parents, as teachers, as professors. As a former faculty member yourself in, in astronomy and astrophysics and physics and mathematics, as a former chief academic officer at the University of Wisconsin system prior to becoming president, um, what sort of tactics, initiatives, efforts did you see at the collegiate level for the generalist maybe that uh, we could all learn from in terms of inspiring, maintaining that, that fire within of curiosity and sending people off as STEM consumers of knowledge and, and behaviors, behaviors reflective of the best we know about science. Yeah, you know, one of the places we do that in the college curriculum in the college and university uh, realm is, is through our general education science courses, which um, can from time to time have a a, a bad reputation and, and many students put off taking their general ed science classes as long as possible, at least they used to and, and some still do, um, uh, somewhat out of fear and some out of, you know, just, well, it's science, it's going to be hard. Um, I think there's some things, though, that have happened that have started to, to change that. And uh, one is the realization that that uh, science really is important and, and everybody has some understanding. and. Um, many of the people that that are now science educators have realized the incredible role of that general education science course and that it isn't there to teach them all of the minutiae that's in a particular field, but how to think like a scientist or how scientists think, not necessarily to get them to the point that they think like a scientist, but to understand the curiosity, to understand the problem solving. Um, and, you know, in the courses that I taught in particular, um, uh, tried to make them as, as interactive as, as possible and as engaging as possible and uh, being amongst the students and, and really getting them to take on and and see the logic that could be developed to find an answer to a problem that at first doesn't seem possible to solve, but there is a way to there and, and how you connect what you know to what you don't know so that you can get an answer to a problem. And I think that has started to permeate much of what we do in science education, not just at the university and collegiate level, but at the high school and, and the K to 12 level is, is it isn't necessarily important that we memorize all of the constellation names or that we memorize exactly how you generate energy inside the sun. But it's, it's, it's more important to help a student understand that it really is possible for us to determine what the temperature at the very center of the sun is and how we can do that, right? That this isn't something someone makes up, but there is a natural process and a fairly easy to follow way to get to something that seems like there's no way you could possibly know what the real temperature in the center of the sun is because you just can't stick a thermometer there. But there are ways to make that determination. And, and going through some of those really helps students understand the value of science and, and the power, the real power of science. Yeah. So is it fair to interpret from 
your perspective here that for the teachers who are listening, who may have, I was certainly guilty at one time of forcing my students to memorize the atomic numbers of the elements on the periodic table, and I'm sorry I did so. But I hear you saying, and I want to interpret for the listeners, that if it comes down to producing a graduate who's interested in science versus producing a graduate who is well academically academically prepared, although not necessarily that interested, you would prefer option A. Yeah, 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 I am. Uh, you know, there's a, many of our students aren't going to go on to collegiate science or careers in the sciences. Um, they will have careers that use some science almost anywhere they go. And so understanding the power of science and how science really works is more important than getting into the minutiae, right? Um, and, and learning to realize that what science does is unique and it's about following a train of logic and developing a, a way of thinking about the world that produces some phenomenal results. Um, and we wouldn't have the society we have, the civilization we have without sort of that way of thinking about things. So uh, helping every student understand the process of science and, you know, not how everything is done, but you can help them understand a, a couple of, of big problems and how the answers were arrived at to those big problems, they'll better understand the nature of science and, and even mathematics and engineering and technology. Yeah, the nature of science these days, I think, especially critical to understand. And I, as you said, I, STEM education has come such a long ways in the last decade or two. And every STEM educator I know at the K-12 and collegiate level is, is on that spectrum progressing toward that vision. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of vision, let's go to the second part of the question. It's crystal ball time, if you don't okay. mind. I know that your job certainly carries an expectation to prepare for, if not predict, the future. Uh, how do you anticipate STEM jobs changing in the future? Let's go out a, a decade or maybe half a century. Um, how does that vision manifest in how the university operates? So where, where's STEM going and, and how does that influence how we operate? Yeah, that, this is a really interesting question, you know, and, and setting here at 62 years of age and seeing what's happened since as we talked about the Sputnik launch, uh, you know, at, at, at the beginning of my life and how science has changed, how our world has changed. Uh, I can't imagine what things are really going to be like 50 to 60 years from now. But there are some things that we know, um, you know, the, the uh, computer revolution isn't over. Um, we're starting to move into artificial intelligence and the things that it can do to help us um, continue to move the ball forward. Uh, the way we're starting to use data through data analytics and what that means, not just for businesses, but for healthcare, for education, for social services, for policymakers, the amount of data that we can not only collect, but can then start to tear apart and analyze and get answers to, right? Um, questions about where things are at, what problems need to be solved, what is it telling us about how to solve those problems, um, I, I think are, are really essential things to pay attention to over the next few years in, in particular. Um, uh, you know, and, and science is always going to be a, 
uh, a part of science is always going to be big science, taking uh, big, whether it's reactors or, or telescopes or colliders um, uh, or, and, and, and big healthcare institutions that can amass the, the equipment and the people to take on uh, a, a cure for cancer, a, a cure for COVID, getting a vaccine put together. All of those are, are big processes, but there's also little processes that are taking place too um, uh, that solve many of these things on the side. And, and, and I think that's especially true in the engineering and the technology world. As you take those, those ideas from science, what we've learned about how the world works, and then push them out into things that people can really use. Uh, much of that happens at, at small companies. You, you think about the start of, of Apple and, and uh, Microsoft and Google, right? These were basement or garage operations that grew, um, and they've grown into to major businesses and industries, really. Um, uh, and, and so I think that's where we're going to continue to go. Um, uh, but uh, you know, that right now, data analytics, artificial intelligence, the importance of, of high quality engineering uh, skills, especially in, in the electrical and chemical fields, um, but manufacturing as well, especially micro manufacturing, um, uh, like we see at AccuMold and, and places like that are going to be um, uh, critical as we move forward uh, in, in healthcare and in, in uh, miniature devices. Thank you. So summarizing the centrality of computational science to all of our lives is really the crystal ball horizon. So given that, a policy question, if you don't mind, would you uh, suggest that we all have at least a fundamental understanding of computation as part of the standard fare of a, of a K-12 or a liberal arts undergraduate education? Yeah, absolutely, right? There, there isn't any of us that can get past the electronic world anymore. Um, and uh, whether we realize it or not, we're we're programming things when we download an app and then mess with that app a little bit, right? To make it work the way we want it to work. Uh, or we get on our computer and, and engage an Excel spreadsheet. And the better we can can do that, um, uh, the better off we'll be able to move and the more efficiently and effectively we'll move through not only our professional lives, but our, our personal lives. So, you know, it starts with a basic understanding of mathematics and mathematic principles and, and, and the logic that that teaches and then that logic is very applicable to the, the computational science. And, and it, even in its most rudimentary forms, is how do you just put things together so that processes flow so people can understand that, yeah, it really is possible to put together a car that no one has to drive because we can figure out how to bring all of the different signals together and move a car forward without, you know, running into cars in front of it and things of that sort. Um, uh, so the computational side is is going to have to grow as well. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to think that all that we may learn about AI and data analytics and cybersecurity and autonomous vehicles could all be turned upside down when quantum computing really flourishes and redefines everything we know about uh, how computers work and what they can tell us and how quickly they can do it. Yeah, that, that's right. The I think the thing, though, to, that's really important to keep in mind is these basic principles of, of logic, of science, of problem solving are going to be the same. Those aren't going to change, right? How we get the answers, how we figure out how this works, what we do with the data that comes out of all of that um, is is still at its core, this, this innate curiosity, asking questions and figuring out how to 
which questions are most important, and then how to answer those questions and having a system for going about getting those answers. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you portray a very visionary and optimistic future for STEM, and I know listeners are going to appreciate that. Let me ask you about challenges to that vision. What, what do you see as some of the greatest threats to meeting that vision of a STEM literate citizenry, especially maybe uh, the subset of STEM literate citizens who go into STEM jobs of the future? What are the threats between here and there? You know, one of the threats that I see is there's sort of a, a been a growing over the last decade or so of uh, anti-intellectualism, a, a push against university education and, and things. And I understand where it comes from, but, um, you know, the real the scientists of tomorrow, the engineers of tomorrow, the mathematicians and the technologists of tomorrow need an education beyond high school. They need to be in our colleges and our universities and, and working through those processes and, and our healthcare workers all of that. Um, our social um, servants, social services providers um, also need to be in our universities and our colleges and, and picking up some of that science training as a background, but but getting that training also in, in how to serve people. And so, uh, you know, that that threat is it's uh, it, you, you don't have to go to college. And, and yeah, there are some there are are great jobs out there and some people can figure it out, but more and more you're going to need a, a, a background that goes beyond just a high school education. So that's one of the biggest ones. And, and we, I think we need to, to really think about the importance of, of education and that education needs to be lifelong. It's interesting. The podcast series, of course, is jobs of the future. But we have to think bigger than job. I think to your point, what I'm hearing you say is we're getting rather narrow in our focus. Can I get somebody trained to do a job? There's a far grander mission afoot here, it sounds like. Yeah, there is. You know, and and I'm with you. We need to train some people in specific jobs. And and those are very good jobs. And that's great. We've got to do that. But we've got uh, a growing economy. And if you want to keep that economy moving forward, it's the innovation. And the innovators are in the sciences. They're in the STEM fields. Some of them are in the arts because it's such a creative mindset in the arts. And, and some of the best scientists really have a background in the arts, uh, develop that creativity in a unique way. Um, but uh, all of the real push and move forward in our economy, whether it's in the, the STEM fields, it's in business, it's in healthcare, it's even in the social services, it's in the, the cultural activities. Um, those are professional programs and they require a, a degree uh, generally at the baccalaureate level. And so, um, you know, a, a push against that is a push against the economy. It really is a way to slow it down. Uh, we do need to have people that can go into the trades, um, and, but those take education beyond the two-year degree too and those are very important for us and many of those trades are more and more um, uh, based on on science and technology fields right uh, C- CD- CNC operators uh, welders they're, they're no longer um, uh, just looking at, 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 at things that can be taught in our high schools these are you know a lot of that's being done computer programming it's being coded um, it, it's in those computational skills again that they need to understand as well. well. Let's pursue that just a little bit. Conversely, to the threats that you see afoot to where we are and the vision that you've conveyed, uh, there's likely opportunities that are afoot too. Recent uh, rising uh, conditions that favor uh, the progress you're describing, would you 
comment on some of the opportunities you see around us to take advantage of? You know, I, I think the things that are going on, especially uh, I, I look at the growth in um, data storage and, and data analytics, the things going on at Google, at Amazon, uh, some of these uh, big companies, you know, there's a lot of push for better understanding data and how to use it. Um, and that's pushing a, a lot more young people to think about um, uh, those fields. Uh, the fact that every one of our kids has a, a mobile electronic device in their hand before they're five, um, you know, whether they're simply FaceTiming with grandma and grandpa or actually getting on and, and doing some lessons during this COVID time as kindergartners and first graders on a tablet, right? Um, they're much more engaged with a, a, a technology advanced civilization and, and, and asking good questions about how this works and, and things that I think is a, a big boost to us. Um, uh, we've got to make sure that they are using these um, uh, devices and opportunities in a way that helps them grow forward um, and things and it isn't just a, a stagnant um, keep them busy sort of thing right um, the equivalent of some of the old homework assignments that we used to have as we were growing up right well you keep busy just do these things um, but that they're actually growth opportunities as they're engaging with the devices and an opportunity to see things that they couldn't get to if they didn't have the device. Uh, you know, I, I've got a granddaughter that's six, almost seven years old, and, and she's just into uh, ancient Egypt. Uh, how do you do that setting in Wisconsin, right? Uh, but she's got access to all these things uh, that are, are research projects that are going on in Egypt at this time or just recently happened because of the internet and some of the devices that are available. Uh, it is an enviable period in human history, the access to information that these kids possess. And you're so right, and I'm going to highlight the imperative on we educators then becomes to help interpret, synthesize, analyze, and critique that tsunami of information. Yep. Yeah, that's one of the things that we've really got to do where there's so much information available, figuring out what's useful, what's just superfluous. Um, and, and that's the basis of really data analytics, right? There's a lot of data there. What can you really use out of it? And even in our own personal lives, uh, we're bombarded with so many things um, and have our fingertips on, on anything you want to know, right? Um, and so how do you, you access the stuff that's going to be useful? How do you decide, make that decision? That really is something we need to teach and train our, our young people about and, and ourselves, even at, at our ages, to continue to sort of ask those questions about, is this useful? Is it beneficial? Is it, is it accurate? Um, and, and what's its relevance? Yeah, that has so redefined what we call education and teaching, and your institution is at the forefront of that. Well, wrapping up, I have one final question for you that I think you might have answered in talking about your granddaughter's obsession with ancient Egypt, but uh, let me see if something else comes to mind. The question is, share with us something you, you did lately or that you heard or that you read or that you saw or maybe you realized in the middle of the night that inspired you about the future of STEM and STEM jobs in Iowa and across the nation for that matter. Yeah, that's a, there's a couple things that have just happened that um, have caught my attention. One, the Nobel Prize was just announced in physics, and it's going to three individuals that were involved in the discovery of black holes. Um, in particular, Roger Penrose is one of them who in 65 sort of worked out the mathematics for black holes and showed that they could exist. 
And then here, just a little over a month ago, a, a team announced um, the recording of, of gravitational waves that showed the merger of two really large black holes and, and the discovery of, of these gravitational waves permeating through space. Um, it, it sort of brings my lifespan into to vision, right? Back in 65, I was all of seven years old and they were working out the mathematics of black holes. And, and now we're at the point that we're actually able to observe the interactions of black holes with each other as they merge through the gravitational waves that we weren't even talking about or thinking about at that time, something Einstein had suggested could happen, right? So we've progressed over this time from 65 to 2020 of saying, boy, black holes could exist mathematically, but we have no idea how you'd find them, right? They don't emit any light. There shouldn't be anything. Not only have we found them, we know of, of many of them, and we're starting to record how they interact with each other and how they can coalesce, you know, at, at half the age of our universe. Um, it, it, this progression is what's, I think, really important. And, and it leaves me asking the question, you know, uh, over this sort of 55-year period from 65 to 2020, what's going to happen in the next 55 years? What's going to blow my mind and really blow the mind of my children and my grandchildren as they see the same sort of things happening in their world, right? Uh, so there's a lot of hope because science is never going to stop asking questions and nature is never going to stop having questions for us to ask. Oh, true. I, I said that was my last question, but you've inspired one more. You exude a sense of curiosity, wonder, uh, the, you're still dazzled by the science, 62 trips around the sun, and you're still innately curious and inspired by the science that goes on around you. Uh, what's your advice to the young listeners and the parents who listen to this uh, podcast about how to maintain that sense of awe? You know, stay out, keep going outside, keep reading, keep watching. Um, you know, I think the natural world is where the inspiration really comes from. Uh, as often as I can, I like to get out, um, it, whether it's into the woods uh, during the day or at night, um, just how, how do things operate, but pay attention to the things going on around me. Uh, a, a real understanding that no matter what I know, there's more to know. Um, and, and that keeps the curiosity going. It also keeps you pretty young, right? This uh, idea of, of, of being curious, of asking new questions. It's a youthful thing. It's the things that, that really is the heart of our, of our youth. And if you can keep it, you keep your childhood forever, right? You never leave it. Dr. Mark Nook, president of the University of Northern Iowa, thank you for sharing your compelling vision for STEM jobs of the future with Iowans and our partners across the country. Thank you. This has been a podcast series featuring the voices of edgenomic innovation, brought to you by the Iowa Governor's STEM Advisory Council. Thank you for listening, and please join me next week to hear from Luis Moreno, Drake University student and STEM Council member, who will share how he's preparing to enter a STEM profession. Today's and all STEM essential podcasts are made available at iowastem.gov forward slash podcast. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you for listening to STEM Essential. This podcast is generously co-sponsored by Collins Aerospace and Mid-American Energy, proud partners of Iowa STEM Council. To learn more and find resources, please visit iowastem.gov.